0: Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, we join our hearts together in praise and lifting up your holy name today. We thank you, Lord, that you have come and God with us, our Lord Jesus Christ, has been made manifest in history, but not just on a date on the calendar 2000 some years ago. But indeed, for every redeemed and blood-bought saint gathered in this room today, God with us, union with Christ is a manifest reality in our own souls, in our own experience, in our own hearts, in our lives. This is a miracle beyond our comprehension, and one that's deserving of an eternity of praise. So this morning, our meager songs and these brief moments are not enough, Lord, or even close, to express to you the glory that you deserve. But I pray that you would take them and multiply them, these expressions of meager, mere finite worship, and let them be sweet-smelling incense before your throne. And now as we stretch our frail minds, Lord, to grasp the immutable truths of Scripture, I pray that you would increase our capacity to understand. Help us to remember, Lord, and to learn diligently from Scripture. What is, Lord, an unchangeable truth in glory that we have our salvation and assurance of the same in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we have an an eternal home in heaven prepared for us, Lord, beforehand, a truth from eternity past in the decree of the Almighty God and the covenant of redemption where hope is secure in Christ alone. I pray that our capacity to know and consequently our affections, Lord, and desires and loves and attention and zeal would be placed, Lord, more in things of the kingdom and less in the idol of self, that we might, Lord, find more areas to conform to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord, as the searchlight of Scripture is brought to bear on each of our hearts. We pray that you would do your continuing Lord, sanctifying work in us today, and if there's any who fellowship with us who do not know you, that they might see the light of the cross and the message that you have prepared by your spirit, Lord, through your word for us this morning. We pray these things that you might be glorified, and we pray them in your name, dear Jesus Christ, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, it's a great honor and privilege to be able to open up the scriptures together, and it's a great gift, one that nothing else can quite compare to, that we have the revelation of Jesus Christ our Lord preserved in literary form before us. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of that very word, and we will read from Luke chapter 2. So turn there with me. Luke's record is fairly thorough in comparison to the other Gospels, especially when it comes to the Christmas story and the beginnings. And the first point of this message in due course will touch on the beginning of Luke's Gospel, specifically in chapter 2, where the angels, the hosts of heaven, herald the coming Messiah. So if you're there, I encourage you with your Bible open to stand with me and let us read Luke chapter 2. Verses 8-14. through 14. So stand with me if you're able. And the Gospel writer records in Luke 2.8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Verse 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, Praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I like to think of these words being sung in the heavenlies. Oftentimes our carols reflect that same imaginative reliving of the experience of the first days of the Incarnation. Indeed, the first day when Christ was born. We imagine with the hymnals and with the uh, psalmists who have followed this event, writing glories to our God for the occasion of the coming of Christ in flesh, that the angels joined in a powerful chorus and echoed from the heavens, with the megaphone of celestial glory, praising and worshiping him, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Earlier I mentioned another what is traditionally considered early hymn of the faith in Philippians chapter 2. And if these two sections of scripture were indeed sung, whether or not they were they were sung, indeed they would have been rehearsed certainly within the liturgical settings of the gathered assembly of the early church, and would have provided great occasion for glorifying the Lord Jesus Christ as they do to us this morning. But imagining them as the subject of worship, even in hymns of praise, allows us to connect perhaps with the church of old and joining with them with the glory. That we so long to give when we read words like this. And again, I'm reading from Philippians 2, 6. Jesus, that is referred to at the end of verse 5, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God, or did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. of God the Father. When we connect these two sections of praise in the apostolic record in Philippians and in the gospel narrative in Luke, we see that the skies were filled with heavenly heralds and the celestial host, that is the angels in heaven, were praising the name of Jesus We also see that at this time it marked that moment in history that had been prophesied of old and was now manifest in the fullness of time where God became man and dwelt with us. Where a virgin, according to Isaiah, conceived and bore a son, and here he was, Emmanuel, God with us, with the government on his shoulders, yet juxtaposed against this picture of a baby "...in a manger, coming in the likeness of a child, an infant son to his mother Mary, born in the likeness of men, humiliated, that is, made lower than his prior pre-incarnate estate, infinitely lower, if you will, to appear in finite realm as mere man, yet somehow not losing anything of His divine nature, very God of very God, and yet fully man here to dwell. And so these incomparable glories, incomprehensible in the ultimate sense truths, are the feast for the mind of the believer and are the endless, infinite wellspring of praise and worship from which we draw to sing to the Lord, Glories do His name for the great work that He has done. This morning's message is entitled, The Glory of the Condescended Christ. Condescension is a theological word that simply brings into view, and another way to say, incarnate, or making Himself low, taking on human flesh, becoming accessible to the tangible experience of mere men. We know from the scriptures, the nature and character of God is such that if He did not condescend to make Himself known, we could not know indeed Him at all. Because our limitations, inasmuch as we are creaturely created other than finite and indeed hopelessly sinful, we could never have contact with the holiness and the virtue, the magnitude and glory and infinite worth Of God Almighty, if He had not taken that step, that stooping down, that condescension, that reaching into our experience in salvation and revelation such that by a miracle of His sovereign hand, we can have communication with the divine. The glory of the condescended Christ, Emmanuel. God in flesh, here to dwell, the point of contact with the heavenly realms of divine glory in the experience of mere fallen humanity. Though it is among the earliest hymns thought to be, it is among the earliest hymns of the Christian church, Philippians 2, 6-11 has been called the Carmen Christi, the hymn to Christ. Those words that I just read to you poetically and profoundly exposit, essential Christology of Scripture. Christology is the truth of Christ. And you'll notice as you look closely at Philippians 2, there was a state prior to his condescension where Christ was equal with the Father. Where he was glorified in heaven. He who was in the form of God, it says in verse 6, Changed in form, as it were. That is, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself take nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Three aspects of Christology. His prior glory as God. The eternal Son of God. The second person of the Trinity. And then the second stage of Christology. His humility, taking on flesh, coming in the form of a servant, being born to Mary in Bethlehem and Joseph, appearing in the likeness of men. And then there's a third stage of Christology here exalted in this primal hymn, if you will. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Prior glory, condescension, exaltation, ascension, glory and triumph seated at the right hand of God. Those are the three aspects of Christology that are celebrated in this hymn. The pre-incarnate eternal sonship of Christ as Yahweh and His voluntary condescension in His incarnation taking on flesh ultimately demonstrated at Calvary, the cross. And then His subsequent triumphal glorification and vindication through resurrection and ascension at the right hand of the Father. Our message today considers Christ in the first half of the Carmen Christi, this hymn to Christ. And it highlights the fact, highlights the fact this morning, and so I'm seeking to do with this message, that although, although Jesus had taken on lowly human flesh in His humiliation, nevertheless, His glory as God was evident even in his condescension for those who had eyes to see, and this is replete throughout the Gospels. Later on, I Lord willing, a subsequent message will later consider Christ's continued condescension to us in spite of his now exalted state. Christ, that is presenting himself accessible to us in salvation, continues. And there's demonstrable evidence of this in the scriptures, even post-exaltation, post-ascension. And so that message will be titled, The Condescension of the Glorified Christ. These themes are incredible. Christ in His condescended state was glorious, and we see evidence of this throughout the Gospels. But Christ in His glorified state yet condescends to dwell with us even today. A heading for you, four glimpses of divine glory, incarnation notwithstanding. Four glimpses of Christ as God in the Gospels, incarnation, that is humility notwithstanding. Number one, Christ's glorious birth. Number two, Christ's glorious ministry. Number three, Christ's glorious submission. And finally, Christ's glorious atonement. Let me turn now to the Gospels for this overview message this morning. And I'm turning back to Luke chapter 2 because there's a curious Greek word there, namely host, as translated in English as host, that gives us a clue to the significant glory that is here evident at the moment, at the day of Christ's birth. Again, we're reading in Luke 2.8, and in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the normative interaction of them with their daily duties was abruptly was abruptly uh, changed and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. A suspension of the normal uh, physical universe happened in their experience and their eyes and ears and senses abounded with the testimony of God the Father revealing to them revelation in a specific way such that the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. This moment is not unique in Scripture, but it certainly would have been unique in their experience, and it certainly, relatively speaking, is absolutely unique. There is seldom a time, in our sense experience, as mere humans, where we get to see beyond the veil of the finite into the glory of God revealed. It happened to Moses on Sinai. It happened, as we've noted, in Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration. From time to time, as God was pleased to reveal himself to his prophets and a select few here or there, it happened in the form of a vision or a dream or an angelic visitation. But here it happened to a group of lowly shepherds. The glory of the Lord shone around about them such that they were filled with fear. The angel said, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. And he goes on to say, describe, this glorious revelation telling them a lowly baby has been born, is lying wrapped as any human baby would, of mean estate, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel, verse 13, not just one and not just glory, but a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Turn with me briefly to Psalm 103. Let me give you a definition of one of the names of God in the Old Testament Scriptures, Yahweh Sabioth, Yahweh Sabioth. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that quite right. I'm not a Hebrew expert. That word translated means Lord of hosts. There are some 239 times that this word, this term for God, this phrase is used in the Old Testament alone. The Lord is described as the Lord of hosts in passages of Scripture like the Psalms, and we read specifically in Psalm 103. This following testimony to the power and glory of God in the Old Covenant where He is described as the Lord of hosts. And notice the connecting ideas in verse 19. The Lord has established His throne, where? In the heavens. And His kingdom rules, what's the extent? Overall. Verse 20, bless the Lord, who? O oh, you His angels, you mighty ones who do His word, Obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord again, who? All His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord, all His works, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This psalm celebrates the ideas connected to the name for God, Yahweh Sabioth, Lord of hosts. This name, as it appears hundreds of times, carries with it associations of an army assembled for the purposes of its commanding king and general. It bears with it the connotations of warfare. Forces and multitudes unified in lockstep organized for a successful battle campaign. It carries with it the idea of an ordered regiment of angelic beings the chief created beings gloriously executing the will of the heavenly Father at the snap of his commanding fingers. It denotes the gathered heavenly bodies of all, indeed, of the created realm, the earth, the heavens, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and at times the Lord of hosts is referred to as or in the context of the Lord of all creation. That is, everything material that exists as a consequence of his spoken word is called as witness to gather and testify to the Almighty's glory. So when the word of God says, Lord of hosts, it means the Lord who is announced and heralded and testified to by the vibrating frequencies of the matter that fills this universe with resplendent glory from galaxy to galaxy to the furthest reaches of this unfathomable universe and across the expanse of the unseen forces of the supernatural realm that populate the heavens with myriads of angels. All of these, this earth, its seasons, the trees that bloom and every created thing That exists as testimony to the creative power of Almighty God. Summoned to the courts of the Almighty to give Him praise. To testify to His power because He is Lord of all those hosts. He is Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. We read further in the Psalms praises and odes that are fueled by this theme. Turn with me quickly, Psalm one forty-eight, as the psalmists, as the psalms are wrapping up and building to a crescendo, where the focus and theme towards the end of the psalter is zeroed in on the praise of the Lord exclusively, we find it ringing with echoes and odes like this: One one forty-eight. One, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Where from the heavens, give him praise him in the heights. Verse 2, praise Him, again, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. That, his, that is, His gathered forces and multitudes organized for His will and decree. Again, the regiments of angels, the heavenly bodies. Notice verse 3, praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens, and on and on it goes, summoning all created beings and all of creation indeed to honor the Lord and lift to Him the praise and the glory He deserves. This is the background, this is the context of Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts in Scripture. There are two more texts that we'll touch just briefly on to underscore and to zero in on some specific ideas attached to this. Turn with me now to Isaiah 6. We're turning quickly through quite a few passages this morning, but I hope you'll trust it's worth it as we see by way of overview some of these powerful themes coming into focus even in the Christmas stories we've read in Luke 2. While you're turning to Isaiah 6, consider Luke 2.13, where there were joined with the angel that announced this truth and word of God to the shepherds, a host in the heavens. And this word in the Greek is stratia, and this means also an army and a host. And that word in that specific sense appears here uniquely. It appears one other time, but the context is slightly different. That is, the author, Luke, in this event of the announcing of Jesus Christ, specifically tailored a Greek word to indicate that an army and a host of gathered ministers and messengers of Jesus Christ was here assembled at the birth of the incarnate Son of God. Whatever could this mean? Well, for those familiar with the prophecies of old, perhaps what would have come to mind is Isaiah chapter 6, where we read of the Lord of hosts and His revelation to one prophet Isaiah in verse 3, and one called to another, that is the seraphim again, the angels commissioned by the Lord for one task and one only, to worship and glorify Him. That thrice holy God is thus exalted in verse 3. Through the lips of these seraphim as they sing holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And notice the whole earth is full of his glory. Yahweh, Sabaoth, Lord of hosts. Holy, holy, holy is he. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And indeed the design of these very creatures is to echo the same. Verse 4, and the foundations and thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And the response of the servant of the Lord, Isaiah, verse 5, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Why unclean? Because his lips, as if yet, had not joined with the host commissioned like the seraphim to echo exclusively praises to the Lord because He is the Lord of hosts and certainly the Lord of Isaiah. He says, I not only have unclean lips, but I dwell in the midst of a people who have unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, who? The Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. We turn over to Isaiah chapter 9 and we see... As further revelation is delivered to the prophet, the messianic prophecies coming into view that bring even more focus to bear on some of these truths here expounded. And this is the famous uh, messianic herald from the Old Testament prophet that was fulfilled as Luke is writing in chapter 2 of his gospel. Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, From this time forth and forevermore. Final phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, will do this. When did this happen? When did this take place? When was the zeal of the Lord of hosts evident in the fulfillment of Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, plan to bring into time and space a child born, a son given, of whom the government would rest, on whom the government would rest, on, indeed on his very shoulder. And among his names would be attached to him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And, and it also says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish and to uphold it forever. When did this happen? In Luke chapter 2, again, we see these themes tied together. As is born to these shepherds and indeed to all the believing world and to all the hosts to behold in the city of David, this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this angel heralding these truths is joined by a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. And it is very curious that that word host, which refers to gather assembled armies, would be there announcing peace. Why would it be so? It is so, I submit to you, because this baby born this day Was Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of hosts? The psalm or the uh, hymn rightly says in Silent Night, Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Where do we see evidence of this child, helpless, frail, dependent on his mother, wrapped in swaddling clothes? Indeed, Lord at his birth? We see it right here in these words that we've read. The birth of this child commanded the heavenly host to assemble and to announce, Emmanuel, God with us, has come. And the heavenly host duly obeyed the command of the Lord of glory and sang from the heavenlies glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, at thy birth, Yahweh, Sabaoth. Jesus, Lord of Hosts. Jesus' glorious birth provides for us a glimpse of divine glory incarnation, notwithstanding. Secondly, Christ's glorious ministry turneth me to Luke chapter three, just a page or so. And Luke chapter three, there are four phases of ministry that unfold very very. Uh, very rapidly in this record. And the first one includes a testimony of the Trinity, the second a testimony of the sacred history, of sacred history, thirdly a testimony of peoples, and fourthly a testimony of the prophets. That is, in Christ's ministry, His pre-incarnate glory was testified to by these four means, and this are not exhaustive, but they are here in the record marching after one another like witnesses called to testify to the glory of Christ. Thus, there is a glimpse, indeed four glimpses within this point alone, within Christ's ministry recorded here in Luke, of divine glory, Christ's incarnation notwithstanding. First of all, consider the the event of His baptism. And we read in Luke's Gospel this in chapter 3, verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. This is the testimony of the Godhead itself. This is the testimony of, Of the Trinity. This is a glimpse of the glory, the divine glory, incarnation notwithstanding. At this moment in the record, in Christ's ministry, the heavens were opened once again, and this time the angels weren't announcing he had come, but God the Father himself, with the affirmation of the first person of the Godhead, declares audibly from glory, You are speaking to God the Son, are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And the evidence didn't stop there. It was also attended by a visible manifestation of the Holy Spirit revealing Himself and attesting to the glory of Christ in bodily form like a dove. And here is a glimpse of the divine glory a peek behind the curtain of mere finitude, looking into the ineffable reaches of the power of God behind the scenes of the incarnation. And thus, it's a glimpse of the glory of the condescended Christ. This wasn't, of course, the only time this happened. That is the testimony. There's two other occasions. We'll touch on another one briefly a little later. That is, two other occasions where Father God announces from heaven a word of affirmation over His only Son. Secondly, under Christ's glorious ministry, consider the testimony of sacred history. Now, it's very interesting to see how the record unfolds. Luke's Gospel and others record the same because there's the ministry of Christ imbued, that is, moved, motivated by, influenced, And as a causal source, the Holy Spirit is cited. For instance, in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, we read, And Jesus, full of the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. Under the direct influence of God the Holy Spirit, God the Son, Jesus Christ, goes into the wilderness for a time of temptation, to be tempted by the devil. And this, I tell you, is the testimony of sacred history. And if we understand it in its biblical context, it gives us a glimpse of Christ's glorious ministry, the divine glory incarnation notwithstanding. As the story unfolds, it says that Christ had eaten nothing during those days, and the sum of them was 40, and when they ended, he was hungry. In verse 3, the devil said to him, You are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. When I say a testimony of sacred history, there is a recapitulation of the probationary period of Eden pictured here. Mankind, when he first appeared by God's gracious hand in the created order, namely Adam and Eve, were also tempted and failed. And they were tempted by the forbidden fruit, Food was placed before them. The redemptive significance of food is throughout Scripture, as we've noted before, but here is particularly important because we are seeing the record of the work of the triumphant second Adam. Christ is tempted as Adam was and does not fail the test. He is submitted to the same rigorous temptation that we were submitted to in Adam. Adam and mankind fell, yet he fully obeyed the Lord, was perfect in his obedience, kept the law in its entirety, and that is what is going on here. Right here, we are seeing the second Adam, the eschatology of the Bible unfolding. We're watching the obedience of Christ manifestly unfold before our eyes in the written record such that he was becoming, in his obedience, the perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our own sin. If he had not been tempted and successfully endured as the second Adam, he could not have represented us in his death. Yet as the sacred history unfolds, we see that this is not a mere man, but this is a man influenced by the Holy Spirit and a man who is also fully God, who stands up to the devil and wins. The devil took him, in verse 5, up and showed him the kingdoms of the world in a moment and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him again, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He, the devil, took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands you will bear you up. They and on their hands they will bear you up. Let you strike your foot against a stone. Verse twelve. And Jesus answered him, "It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test." And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And we see the successful second Adam enduring the temptation. That we failed, and thus becoming, according to the prophecies, the Lamb of God, who would sufficiently and effectively replace us, become the object of the wrath of God, and on the cross purchase our salvation. Later, as we continue to read, we see not only the testimony of the Trinity and his baptism and testimony of sacred history unfolding in the work of Christ, but the testimony of the people who begin to see something gloriously revealed before them. It says in verse 14, Jesus returned, and the power of the Spirit, again, power of the Spirit to Galilee and report about him, went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And the audiences are starting to realize There's something unique and significant about the teaching ministry of this rabbi. He did not speak as one of their scribes, but he spoke with authority. He spoke indeed as God, verily I say unto you. And so the glory of Christ in his ministry is further evidence than the response of those soft of heart who see that they are hearing from the word of God. And then fourthly, the testimony of the prophets. A scroll was opened and given to Jesus. In verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue. And on the Sabbath day, he stood up to read. 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verse 18, quoting from Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and to recover and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the hear of the Lord's favor. Verse 20, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This was just one evidence among many as the Scriptures unfold of how the testimony of the prophets was manifestly fulfilled in the life, the work, the person, the character, and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The anointing of the Holy Spirit was upon Him. And thus what had been spoken centuries prior, among the prophets there would be one who would be born in Bethlehem. And thus that small city would be graced with the privilege of crowning the king of kings, the king of all history and the universe. And we read the fulfillment of the same in Luke chapter 2. There was the prophecies of old again in the book of Isaiah in chapter 53, where we see that the Messiah would also be a suffering servant and he would take stripes on his back and it would please His Father, God the Father, to crush Him on behalf of the sins of the people. And thus by His stripes, we are healed of our ultimate malady. The wrath and justice of God deserving of our sin. And one by one, the prophecies are unfolding in the work of Christ. And in His glorious ministry, we see glimpses of the divine incarnation notwithstanding. Point number three. Christ's glorious submission. Turn with me to Matthew 17. In our going through the book of Matthew, we've covered at length now the Mount of Transfiguration, which of course is one of those singular moments where we see the glory of the incarnate Christ revealed to Peter, James, and John and to us through His Word when His face shone like the sun and His clothes became white as light And there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. But Christ gives curious instructions after moments like this. And consider this in verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. These passages in Scripture where Christ tells his disciples... To hold your fire, as it were, don't share what you just witnessed just yet. Have been curious and difficult for me to understand through the years. But I think in light of a specific truth, they might be make a little more sense. And that specific truth is this that Christ was submitting to certain circumstances that were necessary for our salvation. And so there was a time signature, there was a a, uh, a, an appropriate occasion where the message of Christ would be delivered. But what was not to happen was that prematurely, a popular published propaganda campaign of a Messiah who would overthrow Rome would just flood the newspapers of the day and get the public riled up and all the zealot movements coalesced to raise Christ on their shoulders as some mere political savior. No, there was a certain order and progression of things. And Christ indeed had submitted to the authorities. Because in submitting to the authorities and even His unjust accusation, this was the divine means that God had preordained before time began to crucify His Son for the sins of His people. And so we see this voluntary submission of Christ is testimony To this glorious plan. That is Christ's glorious submission. Even to the political structures. Even to the authorities of the day. And unjustly so. Was a picture of a bigger plan and purpose. God is one we know from scripture principally works all things together for good. Of those that know him and are called according to his purposes. And never was his truth more chiefly. Featured in all of redemptive history than at the crucifixion of his own son. And thus, we have following this audible affirmation again from the Lord of glory, a voice from the cloud saying, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. We have this followed by another curious detail, verse 24. They came to Capernaum and the collectors of the half shekel tax went up to Peter and said, "Does your teacher not pay tax?" He said, "Yes." And when they came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, "What do you think, Simon, from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others?" And when he said this, "from other," and when he said, "from others," Jesus said to him, "then the sons are free." However, 27. However, not to give offense to them, Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up and when you open its mouth you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. We have just seen in the record Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory revealed in His shining pre-incarnate resplendence testified to again by the triune testimony God the Father announcing from the heavenlies to the ears of Peter, James, and John, this is my beloved son, listen to him. We have just seen this man now paying his taxes to an illegitimate authority. Calvin writes this, It may appear unreasonable that Christ should not himself be exempt from paying tribute. To remove that offense, he taught by words that it was only by his will that he was bound. You see what Calvin's getting at here? No one had authority or power over Christ. Christ voluntarily bound himself, submitted himself to these situations. It was only by his, Christ's will, that he was bound. And he proved the same thing by a miracle. For he, Christ, had dominion over the sea, and the fishes might have released him from earthly government. He had more extensive dominion than all earthly kings since he even had fishes for his tributaries. Jesus Christ, in his miraculous power, could say to a fish, Pay me tax. And you cast a line and you pull it in, and there it is the coin in the mouth. If Jesus Christ had this kind of power over all of creation, you don't think he voluntarily submitted. To the authorities of that day for a specific purpose? Oh no, he did. Don't be mistaken. There was a testimony of Christ's voluntary submission, and you and I had better be thankful that he did. If Christ had not laid down, laid aside his glory for the purpose of submitting himself so that for a brief and premature moment, an illegitimate moment, the powers of this earth and the powers of hell could celebrate like they had declared victory over the Christ when they killed him on the cross, if he had not done that, suffered for a brief moment, what looked like a victory to the powers of hell, yours and my salvation would not be secure. But it wasn't but three days, beloved. It wasn't but three days when that victory celebration by the powers of hell was preempted with a sink, eternally sinking, feeling, Of defeat when the Lord of glory, the creator of the fishes, the one who has power over all the universe, burst forth from that tomb, pushing the stone aside, breaking the seal of Rome, and the swords of the soldiers clatter to the ground, and he is thus revealed in his glorified state now, resurrected, and would soon ascend to the Father. There's something glorious about Christ's submission In his ministry, to see the pre incarnate glory of Christ, this window, and then to see it juxtaposed against his humility ought to make us cry with gratitude. If he had not done so, we would not be saved. When we contrast this submission to the tax demanding authorities, to the glory that he had such that he has a power to resurrect Elijah and Moses from the dead, and to communicate outside of time with these two representatives of His Word gone before, the Law and the Prophets, there's something going on here that is indeed glorious. A glimpse of divine power, incarnation notwithstanding. Finally this morning, number four, Christ's glorious atonement. Christ's glorious atonement. There's a glimpse of divine glory. The Godhead revealed, incarnation notwithstanding, even at the moment, of His most dramatic vulnerability on the cross itself. Turn with me to John 18. As the events of Calvary begin to unfold, as the moments of the passion are recorded by the gospel writers, we find in this solemn record details that leave us staggering. In John 18, verse 3 through 9, there is this record. Of, there's a record of this exchange. First of all, it's Christ's betrayal, but notice what happens as we read. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So this mob had gathered all of this, this uh, weaponry and armaments to take hostage Jesus Christ. Verse 4, then Jesus, knowing, knowing... All that would happen to him came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? Is this the response of a mere human? I ask you, if there is an angry mob, a vigilante band, with pitchers, torches, and implements of war chasing you down unjustly, your impulse would normally be to hide. But not only did Jesus go against the grain Of mere human reaction, he did so knowing fully what would happen to him. Why? Because in the record here, we see that he is more than just a man. We see his glory coming through the record. Verse 5, they answered him. I'm sorry, verse 4, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he. Notice in verse 6, the reaction of those who are surrounding him as a mob with weapons. They drew back and fell to the ground. One humble man, Jesus of Nazareth, dressed in meager apparel, not a sword or a weapon to his possession, didn't even have a home, wandered like a vagrant, sharing the message of the kingdom, and had a reputation not as a rich and powerful and influential person and no one behind him with weapons to defend him aside from one crazy man with a sword like Peter. In spite of all of that, those who had come to arrest him drew back and fell to the ground. What are we witnessing here? We're witnessing a glimpse of the divine glory. The Lord is telling us in the record that this was a voluntary submission, that these soldiers didn't have the power to overpower Christ, even if he didn't have a sword or an army of zealots to back him up. One word at his command and a legion of angels, the same legion, I say, that declared that he had come. Indeed, it was described in Luke's gospel as an army would come and rout these in a moment, if this hadn't been unfolding according to God's perfect plan, And so we see in the record that the enemies of Christ bow at his power, even in the moment of his most vulnerable and humble estate going to the cross. In Matthew 27, we see not just the enemies of Christ bowing before him as we record this moment, or this moment is recorded in John 18, but in Matthew 27, we see the elements, and this is that uh, detail was unique to John as far as I know what I just read. And now, these details, some of them in Matthew 27, are unique to Matthew in the account of the crucifixion. And as Matthew is writing about these moments, he declares the following in verse 51 And behold, so again, this is the moment of Christ's death, his crucifixion, as he's hanging, lifeless. Helpless on the cross, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and rocks were split, and tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion And those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Those that had just been responsible for taking this man's life, when they saw the elements of creation itself, bowing before the Lord of glory, reacting to this event with earthquake, and interrupting this moment of a very gruesome, horrific And pitiful crucifixion with a rending of the curtain of the temple from top to bottom. And the earth dislocated from its normal position, rocks splitting apart and tombs opened. It moved a centurion who had just taken Christ's life. If there was ever a time when a mere man thought he had power over Christ, this would have been it. But his attitude changed in a moment. Why? Because he saw a glimpse of divine glory, incarnation, Notwithstanding, the very rocks were crying out, This is the Lord of glory, crucified before you today. And he said, the man who had just taken his life, truly, this was the Son of God. The glorious atonement, even here, has glimpses of divine power in the record. Christ said, power over eternal destinies. Luke 23, verse 39 through 43, a thief is crucified next to him. And he is given the assurance that tonight you will be with me in paradise. John chapter 19, there's an even uh, in the event, in the unfolding of Christ post-crucifixion events, there's the honorable burial that's recorded. In John 19, there's glimpses of glory even in the fact that this man who has just been slain in the most remarkable way, in the most inhumane, the most despicable of all ways to die, crucifixion as a convicted criminal at the hands of a government, and then hung there shamefully, naked, broken, torn, abused and mocked those who had power and authority that day naturally speaking surrounded the crucifix of christ and shouted if you are truly the son of god why don't you come down off that cross now all the authorities of that day both civic and ecclesiastical had condemned him the ruling order of the uh, liturgical authorities as i say the temple order the sanhedrin and the priests had said that he is guilty of blasphemy And now the ruling civil authorities, namely Rome and those who were in charge of governing the civil affairs of the people, had said this man is worthy of death. They condemned him to execution as a shamed criminal. And here he was. And now, with all of the world, as it were, it seems, turned against him, the most unlikely event would be those with power and prestige to be associated with him at this hour. But this is exactly what happened. John nineteen thirty-eight. After Christ had died, we have in the record the following. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus also And notice the arc, what we've gone over in this message today. We open with a record of the angels singing praises, attesting to the glory of Christ because there was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. And now we close this message this morning with an attestation to the glory of Christ that he was an honorable man by his body being wrapped again, but this time in burial cloths by two important man, men. men a one of rich estate, Joseph of Arimathea, and another of the religious elite, Nicodemus, both of them not afraid to be associated with Christ anymore. Why? I submit to you that they had seen a glimpse of the glory behind the condescended Christ. They had seen, despite his incarnation, there was more to this man. And I pray through the pages of Scripture and to your own heart, And in light of this season, whatever means the Spirit would use, I do pray this message, that He would do the same to you. Whatever you've heard and whatever you've thought of Christ, perhaps a mere man, perhaps an important historical figure, perhaps whatever, perhaps the conventional wisdom of the day, that you would, by the Holy Spirit's illuminating power through the pages of Scripture, see a glimpse of the glory of the condescended Christ. So that, as we will cover more at length in a future sermon, he might condescend to you now in his glorified state by offering to you in his grace salvation. Thus begins the countdown in the record to resurrection and also the Carmen Christes, Philippians 2 9 through 12 second verse. And the song that Paul declares, in the pages of the epistle, rises from this moment of Christ's burial in the Christology of the Apostle, to bold notes of eternal, glorious, infinite, divine, and redemptive triumph. And this is the state of our Lord Jesus Christ, even now, as we fellowship here, ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we thank You for the revelation and the message of Christ Emmanuel, God with us in Scripture. We thank you that you have given us, Lord, repeatedly. We have not covered them all, barely scratched the surface. Glimpses of the glory behind the events of Calvary and the events we traditionally celebrate this time of year. I pray for those who are in Christ today that our hearts would be alive and quickened, rejuvenated, sanctified, motivated with the message of the gospel. By beholding the glory of Christ. And for those who may, be or who may be fellowshipping with us. With no reason as of yet to celebrate. Because their soul is lost apart from Him. I pray that the Spirit might give them eyes to see. The glory of Jesus Christ. Fully God and fully man. The perfect sacrifice for sin. Now resurrected and ascended. Ruling and reigning over our lives and all creation, the glory of the Father. Thank you, Jesus, for these precious moments that your grace has afforded us today. May we steward them well. For your name's sake, Jesus, we pray. Amen.